Hello. Today we'd like to talk about some recent work our speakers have done to try to implement high-quality lung cancer screening. My name is Chris Latour, and I'm a pulmonologist and investigator at the VA Portland Healthcare System Center for Improved Veteran Involvement and Care. I'm joined by Peter Mazzone, who's the director of the Lung Cancer Program for the Respiratory Institute at the Cleveland Clinic, and Renda Wiener, who's an assistant professor at the Boston University School of Medicine and a core investigator in the Center for Healthcare Organization and Implementation Research at the Bedford VA. Peter is the first author on a recent joint statement by the ATS, along with the American College of Chest Physicians, to delineate the components necessary for implementing a high-quality lung cancer screening program. Brenda is a co-author on that statement and is leading an ATS-sponsored project on effective implementation of screening. With that as introduction, let's jump right in. So, Brenda, why now? The NLST came out several years ago and showed an impressive benefit of screening for reducing lung cancer mortality. Why are we still talking about implementation? Well, so Chris, as you know, the challenge that always faces us in healthcare is how we can translate high quality evidence into practice in the real world. So the real question um, that's now facing us uh, is how we can offer lung cancer screening in a way that maximizes the benefits and minimizes the harm. So um, implementation of lung cancer screening is really hot right now, I think, because of two big policy changes that are set to go into effect in 2015. Um, First of all, due to the uh, Affordable Care Act, private insurers are um, going to be required to cover lung cancer screening for individuals that meet criteria proposed from the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force. And also, uh, CMS has proposed covering lung cancer screening for eligible Medicare beneficiaries. So specifically, CMS recently issued a preliminary decision proposing to cover lung cancer screening for Medicare beneficiaries who meet the inclusion criteria used in the NLST. So uh, individuals who are 55 to 74 years old with at least a 30-pack year history of cigarette smoking and tobacco use within the past 15 years. CMS also proposed a number of other requirements that are, again, designed to ensure that the benefits of screening outweigh the harms. So those include a shared decision-making visit in which patients are counseled on the trade-offs of lung cancer screening, counseling for smoking cessation, uh, if that's applicable, and also the requirement that programs upload information on individuals who have undergone screening to a national registry. So um, I think those those requirements that CMS laid out are all very appropriate and definitely a step in the right direction. Um, There are other requirements that I would have liked to have seen included. Um, For example, structured reporting of uh, screening CT scans and use of algorithms to ensure multidisciplinary evaluation of screen-detected pulmonary nodules. So um, the policy statements that Peter and I uh, led cover key issues that medical centers should consider as they're developing and implementing lung cancer screening programs that are safe and effective. Um, You know, we put together these policy statements based on expert opinion as well as the best available medical evidence. So Peter's statement covers the core components of screening um, that should be uh, included in all programs and proposes quality metrics for screening whereas my upcoming statement is going to offer more pragmatic advice on how to implement those core components. Peter, tell me how you and your group decided on these core elements and 
um, how you're hoping that CMS uh, uses their these elements in their uh, coverage decision. Sure, I was fortunate to be part of a, a team from the Thrask Oncology Network of the American College of Chess Physicians and the Thrask Oncology Assembly of the American Thoracic Society who got together uh, to put together this policy statement. And our hope was that we could uh, uh, develop uh, some policies surrounding components of lung cancer screening that could impact the balance of benefit and harm. Uh, the groups consisted of individuals who had experience in screening, both research experience and practical experience with programs that they've developed for their own institutions. And we started by reviewing uh, evidence-based guidelines that were available, many of which included a, a, a section on the potential components that could influence be benefit and harm and we supplemented that with our own experience to develop these nine or come up with these nine components that we thought, uh, if performed optimally, uh, would maximize the benefit of screening while uh, minimizing the harm. We were fortunate to present uh, this policy statement to CMS in preparation for their decision uh, with hopes that that guidance could uh, help them to uh, craft a coverage decision that would be most beneficial to our, our, our at-risk patients. And so, Peter, do you, um, are you satisfied, are you happy with how CMS interpreted those uh, elements? Yes, I, I think overall it was a very positive uh, coverage determination. Um, I think that there was some creativity and innovation in the decision. And always, of course, a little bit of room for uh, for extra comment or, or improvement. Uh, I was struck by a few things. First, how strictly CMS stuck to um, the most rigorous form of evidence, in particular in who should be offered lung cancer screening, where they suggested it be the NLST risk cohort as opposed to uh, the risk group identified by uh, the USPSTF through uh, modeling of data. Um, I was uh, struck by how innovative it was that they were willing to cover uh, a visit where the entire purpose of that visit is to discuss benefits and harms of screening so that patients could make value-based decisions. That, I think, uh, helps to move uh, patients into an area where uh, the most educated uh, group of physicians will be able to guide um, a screening program and the follow-up of those results. A couple of areas of our policy statement that weren't well represented have been mentioned by Renda, and hopefully in the final coverage determination some of the language will be included. Uh, we, particularly being pulmonary groups, thought that nodule management is one of the most important aspects of uh, minimizing harms of, of screening. And, uh, and so we had a, a fairly lengthy section on nodule management algorithms and the specialties that should be involved in a lung cancer screening program to be sure that nodule management was occurring uh, at, in, a, in as evidence-based a manner as possible. And so hopefully the final determination adds a little bit in that area. We had also suggested a few quality metrics related to uh, the portion of individuals who uh, meet the risk criteria that, that are being screened, 
and the use of uh, structured reporting and how often that structured report is used. And I'd like to see some of those quality metrics uh, enter into the discussion. The final um, area that, that we uh, tried to stress in our policy statement is that this is truly screening, meaning um, patients don't have symptoms of cancer. They may have stable symptoms of their chronic disease, but not symptoms of cancer, so it's not a diagnostic test. And the individuals that we screen uh, who are at risk for lung cancer you know, might be affected by many other illnesses, and we wanted to stress that to benefit from lung cancer screening, you have to be healthy enough to have standard of care treatment for early stage lung cancer. And so we hope that the final coverage determination will um, add some language about um, having no symptoms of lung cancer rather than just being asymptomatic and being healthy enough to tolerate treatment. That's great. Well, one thing, and, uh, I'd actually like to ask both of you this question, and maybe I'll start with Renda. But um, how hard is this going to be to pull off? I don't, I don't, I don't um, know the history of CMS and other screening decisions, but this sounds a lot more complicated than what's been done in other settings. And so I'm just curious, from either uh, or I guess both, both a research and through your own practical experiences, how hard do you think it's going to be for these uh, places all across the country? to meet all these requirements? Um, well, Chris, I think you're absolutely right there. I think this is going to be challenging. And as Peter mentioned, um, CMS has been very innovative here with some of the things that they're, that they're doing for the first time with this uh, coverage decision on lung cancer screening. Um, I could say a lot about the issue of um, the shared decision-making visit that they've required with use of uh, decision aids. Um, I think that's something that's that's pretty novel, and um, to some degree, it'll be kind of uh, you know seeing how it goes. There are definitely going to be challenges to implementing this, but in general, I think it is important. Yes, it is a complex uh, process and a complex set of requirements that CMS has set out. But I think that that's actually uh, quite important. I, I think that um, that Peter and I um, and the others on our committees would agree that, you know, we don't necessarily think that um, screening should be offered in every single, um, you know, medical facility that's out there. It should really be done in places that have the capacity to do it carefully and to do it right and to implement programs that cover these nine core elements um, that uh, Peter's statement uh, proposes. Yeah, I fully agree with what Rinda says. I do think it will be difficult, uh, but not impossible. The hope is that CMS's uh, decision and, and what it mandates programs uh, have in place allows programs that are serious about performing screening at high quality to um, thrive um, while helping you know other programs that may not have the capability of meeting all these requirements you know connect to uh, uh, another program for their patients i think that screening done poorly can be quite harmful to our patients the other value would be for those trying to set up a screening program you now have both uh, renda's uh, statement the statement the policy statement uh, uh, that i helped to author 
and now CMS's uh, decision to go to their administrators and say, this is the kind of support we need to do this well. Uh, it's not just a, a random physician asking for dollars. It's you know uh, evidence and uh, strong suggestions from interested subspecialty groups uh, saying this is not easy and you need help, uh, you need support if you're going to do it well. Sure. Well, Chris, so all medical centers who are offering lung cancer screening are going to be required to submit data to the registry in order to receive payment from Medicare. So I think really it's going to be very widely used. Um, there are existing models for registries like this. Um, for example, there's a national registry uh, that CMS mandated for use of um, PET scan for certain uh, types of cancer patients um, and other registries that are, that are out there. Um, so CMS required um, that these registries include a number of uh, data elements. They set out the minimum required elements for a registry, um, and those include elements on the patient, such as uh, demographics, smoking history, what the indication was for screening, uh, elements about the screening CT scan itself, such as the scanner type used, the radiation dose, and the results of the scan, um, elements on evaluation of any screen-detected pulmonary nodules, uh, elements on the incidence of lung cancer at one year among patients who underwent screening, and elements on uh, both lung cancer-specific and all-cause mortality. So I think that all those elements that CMS required as minimum uh, elements to be included in the registry are very important and appropriate. Um, however, as we've mentioned, um, there are other elements that, um, that ATS and ACCP thought were important and that were covered in uh, the statement that Peter led that were not um, included, at least in the uh, preliminary decision uh, from CMS in which they described their registry. So, for example, um, Peter's statement includes um, the idea that programs should track the use of um, structured reporting templates for um, screening CTs. Um, we also believe that programs should track um, how many patients have been offered smoking cessation services. And those are just a couple of examples of things that were not um, you know, included in the list of minimum data elements for the uh, CMS proposed registry. Well, that's great. Well, that, that brings up one other question I had, and Peter, I'll address this to you about smoking cessation. Um, I know a lot of people are worried about smoking cessation in, in, in screening populations. There's some concern that um, that uh, people that get screened are going to feel like they have maybe a license to keep smoking. Um, and so I'm just curious about your thoughts about how are we going to make this work and how are we going to you know do the best service for our patients by um, helping them to quit? Okay. That's a great question, uh, one that you're probably uh, – best position to answer from all the work you've done in the area over time. The concern being that a, a normal screen might make people say, well, I can just keep smoking, or the potential benefit of saying an abnormal screen might help people quit, or it's a teachable moment when you visit with your, your patients. Uh, so far, in general, screening hasn't seemed to impact smoking behaviors either to the positive or negative. Those individuals who are screened who are told they have an abnormal result, a nodule on their scan, uh, there is some evidence to suggest that they are more likely to, to quit or to stop smoking. Um, so it's still an area that's really, really ripe for, for further research. 
now that there's this uh, coverage determination suggesting every one of these patients has to be met and sat with to discuss the risk and benefits of screening, uh, that visit will also be able to be used for smoking cessation counseling and to really engage our patients. Hopefully, uh, they're already motivated, a little bit nervous about their chance for uh, developing lung cancer and a reason why they're um, you know, participating in lung cancer screening. And so, uh, over time, it would be uh, incumbent upon us to use that opportunity to, to teach about smoking cessation and, and support our patients through that. How effective that'll be uh, is hard to know right now, but I think it's a great opportunity. Um, the potential improvement in uh, in developing lung cancer is greater from smoking cessation. The potential impact on uh, the cost-effectiveness of screening is tied to smoking cessation. So there's many, many reasons to make smoking cessation a critical component of, of your screening program. Yeah. Well, that brings up the, the shared decision-making visit. And so, Ren, I'm just curious about some of your uh, thoughts on that. Um, I know there's there's going to be some hesitation because now if we have to talk about, you know, smoking cessation and the risks and benefits of screening and, you know, all these other uh, aspects of what that visit is, is that, is that going to be, a, you know, an hour-long visit that, uh, you know, primary care people are supposed to do? Or how, how is sort of, what's your vision for how that uh, how that works in the real world? Right. So, Chris, that's a great question, um, and um, I think it is a really important one because studies have shown that um, clinicians do perceive uh, the time it'll take to go through shared decision-making as a real barrier to it happening, um, especially when there are so many competing demands on uh, clinicians in terms of what they have to cover in a visit. However, I think that's why CMS absolutely got it right by um, mandating a shared decision-making visit, which will be reimbursed um, as a requirement for uh, coverage for patients who are undergoing lung cancer screening. Because there's going to be this mandated visit for shared decision-making, that will help ensure that clinicians really do take the time to explain to patients what lung cancer screening is all about, that it's really a process um, that starts with the CT scan but extends through evaluation and treatment of any uh, screen-detected nodules, um, if necessary. And um, it's important that patients know that, that nodules are very commonly identified and will require evaluation, so they know what they're getting into. So shared decision-making can really help patients understand both the potential benefits of lung cancer screening, namely the possibility of um, finding a lung cancer at an early treatable stage and intervening before the cancer becomes deadly, but it's also important that they understand the potential harms of lung cancer screening such as the anxiety that a false positive result can cause, the radiation exposure from the screening CT and any imaging done to evaluate screen-detected nodules, the possibility of physical complications from the evaluation process, and the possibility of overdiagnosis of a clinically insignificant tumor. Um, all of those are things that are supposed to be covered according to the uh, CMS decision um, for coverage of lung cancer screening. And I think that that's really important to help patients um, understand the trade-offs of lung cancer screening and decide together with their clinician whether screening is the right thing for them. The trouble, of course, as with sort of everything else we've been talking about on this uh, podcast, is how to implement shared decision-making so that it's done effectively, which is not necessarily as simple as it, as it might seem. 
So CMS has proposed the use of decision aids, for example, to help facilitate the shared decision-making process, but there are currently no decision aids for lung cancer screening that have been rigorously tested and validated and are widely available. So this is another uh, important area for research um, and clinical care as lung cancer screening is implemented. I think one of, um, in sort of our own screening efforts that I've uh, been involved with, I think one of the um, uh, concerns that a lot of my primary care colleagues have is that they're not necessarily the, the ones who know all the risks and benefits and don't necessarily have the, the time to uh, go through all this. And I think also they're, you know, we've talked to them, um, they're concerned about the the sort of aftermath of all the follow-up. I think if you read the American Academy of Family Physicians as the only major organization to not recommend screening in the recent past, I think you can hear in their statement that they're very concerned about the burden that lung cancer mm -hmm. screening is going to place on uh, them as primary care as a profession. And so, Peter, maybe I'll start with you, but Renda, I'd also like you to um, uh, pipe in. Do you think what can we as pulmonologists do to help our primary care colleagues to get screening right? Yeah, I think that this is a very, very critical point and something that uh, every program that's getting started needs to think about. I remember a couple years ago um, giving a, a grand rounds at one of our local satellite hospitals and talking about the risks and benefits and what the primary care providers would need to be talking about to their patients with hopes that we'd have a primary care provider sort of driven program. And, and I remember the first question I got from the audience was, why don't you just do it? Um, I don't have time to do all that. And it struck me that oh, maybe this was just one you know person's uh, opinion. And as we rolled out our program the last couple of years, anyone can order the scan and we have a registry and the program, you know, make sure that the quality is is there on the back end rather than the front end. And, and we've learned that the education of the patients is probably not ideal and uh, their knowledge about nodules, the communication about the test results and follow-up when the scan's supposed to be is, has been less than ideal. And if we weren't tracking the quality, uh, we would have um, been providing quite poor quality to our patients. So. We had made a decision that the program now has to take much more ownership about the education and the, uh, both pre- and post-test and the follow-up of the nodules. And I was very nervous in sending out a letter to everyone who had ordered the test, every ordering provider, saying, look, we're going to start to take over some of this um, because I'm a little concerned about uh, the quality overall. And the only answers I got back from sending out that letter were, you know, thank you, um, that they were ready for the program to take more ownership and rely on the primary care provider less to provide that education and uh, nodule management um, follow-up. So um, as I see it evolving, it may change over time as we get better in how we educate our providers and this becomes more mainstream and we have five or ten years under our belt. But at least initially, I think the those with the most interest, and maybe us pulmonologists, it may be radiologists at your uh, hospital, it may be a combination of several um, subspecialty groups, but those with the most interest in this area, I think, will have to own the process and uh, support the 
primary care provider's patients. Brenda, I'm curious about your thoughts as well. You know, Chris, um, I think that this is a really important question, and I think it's one that, that hasn't really been uh, figured out yet, you know, what the best way to approach this is. So in my research, I've been, um, you know, studying um, how different early adopting programs with, uh, for lung cancer screening have addressed this issue, and different places have really handled it differently. With some, um, like Peter's group at Cleveland Clinic, um, you know, having the, the lung cancer screening program be responsible um, for educating patients and uh, communicating with patients. I think that is the route that many screening programs have taken, and it appears to be successful. However, there are also successful models out there um, in which primary care is taking responsibility for this. And I think that, um, as Peter said, if that is the model to be followed, it's incumbent on the screening program and us as pulmonologists, as experts in this area, as well as the other disciplines involved, radiology, thoracic surgery, to um, help educate the primary care providers about the relevant issues that need to be covered with patients. So I think it can, you know, either approach can be successful. I think to some, it, some extent it depends upon the local culture and um, in the setting that's implementing the program. Um, and again, I think it's an area that's ripe for um, future research, uh, you know, to figure out what the best approach is. Yeah, well, it certainly seems like the NLST was groundbreaking, but it certainly didn't um, answer 99% of the questions that we're going to you know, still, <laughs> still be needing to address. Right, right. So, good. Well, why don't um, we sort of think about wrapping up, and maybe I'll just ask um, each of you, and Rendell, I guess I'll, I'll start with you about your final thoughts, um, maybe on, you know, where do we go from here, um, what do you think? What do you think screening is going to look like in 2016? And what do you think? What do you think we're going to say in, you know, 2020? And say, oh golly, we really, we really got that right, or oh shoot, we really, we really messed that up. <laughs> well, Chris, I wish I had a, a crystal ball to answer those kinds of questions, and uh, also to tell me uh, which grant proposal would be the one most likely to be funded. <laughs> but. Um, you know, I think that it is a really exciting time for lung cancer screening. I think, as we've uh, discussed already, CMS has um, proposed some really innovative um, requirements with regard to lung cancer screening and, and, and uh, what will be required for coverage. I'm particularly, given my interest in uh, patient-clinician communication and shared decision-making, I'm really excited to see how that plays out and what the most effective strategies are for uh, implementing that. Um, and um, as Peter mentioned, I do think it's really important that we get the um, evaluation of pulmonary nodules and screen-detected nodules right. Um, so I do believe there should be more emphasis on that, and I hope that CMS, um, you know, tweaks the, the language of their, um, their final decision for coverage. Um, but... Again, I think it's it's a really exciting time, a lot of opportunities for, for research as we move forward. Peter, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think they're very similar. I think it's just a, a fantastic time uh, for uh, lung cancer and lung cancer screening for those with a strong interest to really get this right. You know, e even up to today, there are 
pro-con editorials in journals and at, at every meeting uh, where uh, the academic community still has some fracturing about how uh, whether this is the right time or not. Uh, so this is our opportunity to do it real well, and I think the, the, the next few years, hopefully the focus is on, on where we're comfortable that it's the right thing to do is in uh, implementing it in a way that proves uh, we can do this well, we can help more people than we're going to hurt. And then from there, moving forward, you know, the research will hopefully become available to say, well, how can we expand the benefit um, to uh, people who may not fit our current criteria? How can we find the right risk groups and incorporate them? And how can we minimize the harms through nodule thresholds or other kinds of testing? Uh, how can we incorporate even lower dose CT scans? And so I, I I think I'm optimistic that there will be improvements uh, to both how many people we could offer this uh, this program to, and uh, how we can minimize the harms in a way that will, you know, allow as many people to benefit from lung cancer screening as possible. Yeah, well, it certainly seems to be an exciting time, and and um, really, it's 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 pretty uh, uh, amazing to be sort of on the ground floor of this. Uh, process that, you know, I think really does have the potential to offer a lot of benefit to a lot of people, but while also recognizing that it also has the potential to offer a lot of harm to people. And so I think, um, you know, my own sense is that uh, getting it right the first time out of the gate is hugely important. I agree. Me too. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We've included links to several papers, including the ATS statement on high-quality lung cancer screening on our website. We hope this podcast has been both entertaining and educational. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Thank you.